0: This is a
1: whole observatory podcast. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Welcome
0: to Star Stuff. Hello and welcome to Star Stuff. I am Cody Halfmoon and today I'm joined by co-host Haley Osborne.
2: Hello everybody.
0: And Dr. Martin Elvis. Thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks.
0: We have a, a short bio, but um, I don't want to give any spoilers. So I'm going to try to stay surface level here. But you are an astrophysicist at the Center for Astrophysics at Harvard and Smithsonian. Is that correct? correct.
1: Absolutely correct.
0: Very cool. Awesome. <laughs> you are a postdoctoral fellow with the UK Science Research Council.
1: Hundreds of years ago, yeah.
0: A right. hundred years ago. Okay. I'll add that to my notes. Uh, And you've researched X-ray astronomy, black holes, and quasars, and now asteroids. Correct. When we first were talking about doing this episode, the first thing I did was I googled, what's a quasar? (laughs) So,
2: (laughs) yes, I have a lot to learn in this episode. Uh, (laughs) Um I'm literally so excited for this episode my very first research project was on quasars so when i saw that i was like oh my gosh look at that <laughs> yeah
1: great. yes well i love them they're dear to my heart if they're a cool
0: name what is a quasar
1: uh, quasar stands for quasi stellar object and it's uh, essentially it's a giant black hole at the center of a galaxy uh, with enormous amounts of gas pouring down onto it and that gets very hot and so hot, it glows in x-rays, not just in optical light. You know, red hot, uh, it's way beyond white hot. Uh, it, it's x-ray hot. And so wow. And my thesis was uh, basically said, oh, look, they're x-ray sources.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and they vary. That was, my, that was the other part of my thesis. And the fact that they uh, can change in brightness in x-rays in, in like a day or sometimes much less Means that uh, they can't be more, because of the speed of light, they can't be more than about one light day across, right? So that's sort of the size of the solar system. So you have this enormous amount of power, about equivalent to a whole galaxy of, a, of billions of stars, um, coming out from a region just the size of the solar system. So it probably uh, wouldn't be a healthy place to hang out, but it's a fascinating place to study from a distance.
0: That's amazing. <laughs> Super cool. <laughs> Um, I was going to ask if there was a quasar in the Milky Way.
1: Uh, no, uh, the, right now the, the supermassive black hole at the centre of our Milky Way uh, is very is is being starved of gas, so so it's a very very quiet one. It's it's uh, ten million times fainter than it needs than it might be if it was if gas was pouring down onto it. That may be very lucky for us, of course, that it, it may not be very healthy to life to have a quasar in your own galaxy.
0: Oh, right.
2: Of course.
1: Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you must, you've probably seen pictures of, uh, of it. It's called Sagittarius A star, it's in the constellation Sagittarius. It's right in, in the Coalsack sac nebula, but you can, in the infrared, you can see uh, the, the, the stars moving around it at, at very high speeds. and absolutely guaranteeing this is a black hole and then even more recently with radio wavelengths which pass right through all the dust and gas in the way uh using an enormous array about the size of the earth of uh, different telescopes linked together uh we've event
2: to, horizon we've telescope exactly
1: <laughs> heard it. It's, it's yes. so
2: cool it's
1: <laughs> yes and you can see the shadow of the black hole so we know it's no doubt about it that they exist and we have one relatively close but luckily not too too active, as we call it.
2: Uh, Dr. Elvis, I know we've never met before this, but I am known as the black hole girl here at Lowell Observatory. Yes. Uh, I literally have a tattoo of a black hole because I'm just – so fascinated they're so yeah. cool um, really? so
1: well, I, I i would ask the details but perhaps not
2: okay. <laughs> <laughs> um i got it because of my work on quasars because i just thought it was super cool and um yeah. so i actually do have a question so um when you saw the pictures that came out of the Event Horizon Telescope, so the supermassive black hole in M87 as well as the one in our own galaxy, uh, what were what were your first thoughts? You know, like when you saw this, what what went through your mind?
1: Sort of gasp, <gasps> yeah, <laughs> wow, it's true. All this stuff I've been studying for so long, it's true, right? <laughs> that Must have been
2: so validating. <laughs>
1: Yeah, my, all my family think I'm crazy for, for wasting my time on, uh, on studying something totally abstract and far away. But uh, uh, to me, they're not very abstract. They, they seem very real. Yeah. And, and that picture makes it so obvious. So It's great.
2: Oh, my gosh. I, I cried when I saw it. Like, I literally I started crying. <laughs> I bet you did. I bet you did.
1: Very reasonable reaction, yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's just and so cool. <laughs> why was that picture so groundbreaking?
1: Oh, we've never seen anything anywhere near the event horizon is as an actual image. Uh, in X-rays, we know that the X-rays are coming from very, very close to the event horizon, maybe a few times further out, uh, because they vary so fast. Mm. Uh, but yeah. but that's that's one thing to know it, and you work it out from the light travel time, and you say, oh yes, okay, must be a few Schwarzschild radii. But then you see it that that's just. You know, a pictures worth a thousand words, or um, always, and it's just terrific, terrific, it's very much. So it was
0: only math, theoretically, before you saw this photo.
1: I knew it was true. That's, <laughs> that's, it's so, as you said, it's validating to see if, if for real. Yes.
2: Yeah. Um, for those of our listeners who are not as geeky about black holes as we are mm-hmm. um you mentioned the event horizon could you could you explain that a little bit what is the event horizon oh, yeah.
1: so so the easiest way to think of it and i think it's off by a factor of two if you use proper general relativity is just uh you can there's a thing there's something called the escape velocity for any body any mass and for earth that that's uh, some twenty something thousand miles an hour and um if you if you throw something up that fast, it escapes from Earth altogether. If you slow it up a bit slower, it can go into orbit around the Earth, right? And you can imagine make, uh, making the Earth more and more massive and the this escape velocity goes higher and higher and higher. And at a certain point, the escape velocity gets to that of the speed of light.
0: Mm-hmm. That
1: means and nothing goes faster than light. So once you get just a tad past that threshold, then not even light can escape. And so it, wow. it's, so at that point, you can't see anything inside. No events that take place inside that region ever make give a signal to the outside world. That's
0: so creepy, super creepy. <laughs> um, I I was told recently that if you could theoretically just poke a black hole, it's not a hole at all. It's just like it would be a really like the smoothest surface ball that you've ever touched
1: yeah uh that's called the no hair theorem meaning that uh, it's the black holes are in a way the simplest things ever in the universe they only have a mass which causes this great event horizon they can spin and in principle they could have electric charge on them but in, in astrophysics they don't even have that so they that's they have no features whatsoever beyond that at least in our current physics so uh, maybe we'll find some way in which that's uh, overtaken by uh, by new physics but at the moment mm-hmm. that seems to be the case so they they're even they're even more hairless than my head <laughs>
0: In your research of like of black holes, did you ever come across any math that would um, validate wormholes?
1: Oh, I that's that's much too difficult math for me. I'm, <laughs> oh, yeah. I just l- listen to what clever people say about that. I don't. I don't. Know but, uh, let me see. No, I, c- I can't make an intelligent comment about that.
0: <laughs> Are they even related? Like. Yes. I- yeah. Okay. Okay, they are okay, and theoretically, it's a thing. It's not just something it's, fun for a sci-fi.
1: Thing, but uh, but the, uh, the last time I listened to a talk about this, it was clear that you could not send any signal through this wormhole. They couldn't oh. find a flashlight through it or anything like that. So maybe that will be uh, undone by better calculations. But uh, at the moment, that's that's where I heard it last. Yeah.
0: Terrifying. yeah
2: scary i was literally thinking like i um at the beginning of covid the educators we were encouraged to write little like five minute talks on things that we're interested in and i um of course did mine on black holes because you know of course um, (laughs) and (laughs) i found that there are like two types of black holes theorized to have like wormholes Inside them, have you have you ever like heard
1: well, of those? Well, <laughs> Am I crazy? um I, I think they're like super, those. are Those really are super theoretical. And uh, mm. the problem is, how do you ever test it? Since the you have to go inside the event horizon to yeah do test, and then I, you may find the answer, but you can't send it out to anybody. <laughs> so I don't know. That's how fair. Maybe there's <laughs> some clever way, but I I don't know of anything.
0: How are black holes formed?
1: Ooh, you asked a tricky question.
0: <laughs> oh, I did? Yes. yes.
1: <laughs> oh, good. Small black holes, ones like the, the mass of our sun or a few times bigger, right? We understand that. They, they form from normal uh, stellar evolution. If the star is too big and it, it, uh, when it, it goes supernova and crushes its interior, then it could form a white dwarf or a little bit bigger star crushed in, it goes to a neutron star. But after a certain point, the, the, the mass, there's too much mass inside, and that will form a black hole. And we understand those, right? Up to mm-hmm. probably uh, 10, 20 times the, the the mass of our sun, then we understand it. Uh, mm-hmm. We now see, thanks to gravitational waves, uh, black holes merging, and you can work out from the signature of the, of the chirp of the black hole, of the gravitational wave, that there are black holes that are bigger, but you know, a few, 10 times bigger maybe, up to that, tens of, of times the mass of our sun. So they're a little puzzled, wow. you get those, but they're very rare, and you can come up with clever ways to uh, squeeze stellar evolution to make that happen. The real problem is, and the big surprise, is that there are these supermassive black holes that are at least a million times the mass of our sun. Uh, like the one in our galactic. oh my God, is about two million times bigger than our Sun.
0: That's inconceivable. literally right. I can't conceive of that.
1: <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost literally, right. We cannot conceive yeah. of how they came to be. They can go up to far bigger. They can be as as much as ten billion times the mass of What?
0: How? What? What? Yeah, what is course, making up that mass? Like, yeah. where is it coming from?
1: You see those back when the universe was only a small fraction of its present age. What? Right? And so, even if you fed them, as I was talking about, you feed them at the highest possible rate that we can uh, that we think is allowed, uh, then they simply could don't have time to grow from. Uh, ordinary star remnants into these monsters by the time we see them. So it, it's a real active puzzle how we get them. You have to try to start off with ones that are only ten thousand times the mass of our sun, and that we don't know how those would form either. There are some ideas. Uh, so you know, we're hmm. not panicking, but because there are. Oh, I've got a plan. I've got a plan. Uh, we don't. We just can't test which one of those is the right answer.
0: Hmm.
1: So it's and, a big puzzle, yes.
0: And is your research involved in in those kind of questions, or um, were was your research some, about some other specific? Uh,
1: what I uh, started to do was to uh, – perhaps one of the most uh, better-known things I did was uh, uh, after discovering that they were X-ray sources, that then saying, well, how do the X-rays relate to all the other light that comes out from um, – these, black hole, these quasars at uh, different wavelengths. And so mm-hmm. I was very lucky to be doing it when I did, because just at the time we started seeing quasars in X-rays, we had new telescopes that worked in the infrared and in the ultraviolet. Mm-hmm. They were just sensitive enough to pick up the brightest quasars. So we started putting together uh, an atlas of how the energy was distributed over all these different wavelengths. And- including eventually mm-hmm. the far infrared and the radio. And it, it was great. And uh, so that's how you know how much total power is coming out. So stars, right, send out most of their light at a particular color. They they it hmm. basically a black body, which has a fairly well-defined peak to it and then drops off very fast on one side, a bit slower on the other. So the sun is in the sort of yellow part of the uh, spectrum and it peaks there. If you uh, look at other stars, they might be very blue, they might be very red, um, and but they definitely have a have a peak. Uh, you do the same plot for quasars, and it's more or less flat all the way from X-rays down through the ultraviolet, optical, infrared, far infrared. It does drop off in the radio usually, hmm. uh, but so they're very democratic. They spread their wealth. <laughs> uh, so but it means that finding out how bright they really are total power it, it's a lot of work because you have to put together all these different satellites and telescopes and uh, measurements from them and so yeah, so i spent quite a lot of time mapping that out and it was it was lots of fun people still talk about it
0: <laughs> nice. that's amazing so to clarify when you say when you you know you discovered that they were in you know, X-ray sources. You yeah. said, um, was that something that was sort of already theorized,
1: or uh, did you literally no.
0: discover that?
1: Uh, I, I didn't know enough to be surprised by it because I was just uh. a new graduate student. But I should have said, oh, they can't be X-ray sources because we have this new theory of accretion disks by these two Russian guys, Shakura and Sunyaev, that explains that the, the, there'll be a any matter falling down towards a black hole will collapse into a disk uh, because of the angular momentum, as if I'm allowed to say that, of the gas. <laughs> and, so flat disks are, are very common in in astrophysics, right? So there's rings of Saturn, there's the solar system. Oh,
2: right, planets, right, right. Yeah,
1: you see them all the time, and it's for the same basic physics reason. You, you've got to get. It's hard to stop the gas rotating, uh, but it'll it'll always have one preferred. Direction and in the perpendicular direction. Not the, if you're rotating in the equator, then the north-south it can't support itself and collapses. Right? Oh my gosh! So, so that's why it forms a disk. And if you do that with a quasar, then um, all every different ring of the disk is, is is orbiting around the central black hole, but they're orbiting at slightly different velocities. So there's a sort of friction going on between the different at all the, all the little rings of the, uh, of the disc. And that, in a complicated way, I'm afraid, leads to uh, heating of, of the disc. And it gets hotter and hotter and hotter as you go on the inside because the different velocities uh, are much bigger as you get nearer in and move the, move in by a little bit. At first, it's, it's a very gentle thing, and then it gets very steep and steeper and steeper. So by the time you get My God. Well, to the innermost radius of, that the disk can possibly sustain itself, you, you, I was thinking, well, it's going to be x-rays. I, that's wrong. It, it, it would actually be um, in the ultraviolet or in the far ultraviolet, but they never get into the x-rays that I was looking at. So I shouldn't huh. be very surprised that there were x-ray sources. But I, also, <laughs> I, didn't, know, I didn't know anything about this uh, theory at the time. That sounds brilliant. (laughs) Ignorance in this case was was just a stroke of luck, yes.
2: Since we're talking about X-rays, I read in your bio that you actually worked with the Chandra Space Telescope. Could you like Tell me what that was like. That sounds so cool.
1: Oh, yes. Well, of course, the Chandra X-ray Observatory, as we love to call it, uh, is the flagship of NASA for the X-ray band. And it's the first X-ray telescope to have a resolution comparable to the Hubble Space Telescope.
0: Right? Oh, my God.
1: So, and so On you, the ground. No, the Hubble Space Telescope in space. And, and, and mm-hmm. the, uh, you can only do X-rays in orbit, right, because the atmosphere blocks – uh, all X-rays coming to us, very, very. The yes. Chandra,
0: I mean, the the Chandra is
1: in orbit. Yes.
0: Oh, okay, okay, I'm on board now. <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay. As as are infrared telescopes and and Hubble is is uh, in orbit, of course, to get rid of the wobbling of the night of the sky of the atmosphere, of the seeing as we call it, so it gets very sharp images. And no, X, no X-ray telescope had got anywhere near that. Uh, sharpness of of its image until Chandra. so so Everything was a revelation. Lots of things that we thought would be a a little point, a dot like a star, uh, turned out to have glowing X-rays extended around them. Uh, Even some of the quasars. So uh, although I said they're very fast and they're very tiny, some of them have – what looks like uh, material being blown out, or maybe it's just we're illuminated, the quasar at the center is illuminating uh, the galaxy and it's glowing uh, as a result. So uh, we're hmm. still working that sort of thing out. Yeah. And that this may so indicate cool. one of the ways in which black holes can influence the whole evolution of the, the galaxy that they're in, which seems to be true because uh, the mass of the stars in the galaxy, which form out of gas, Uh, tracks very well the mass of the central black hole, which forms from gas falling onto it. And how they stay in sync is a good question that's occupying a lot of people's uh, attention right now.
2: (laughs) That's so cool.
1: It's very weird. Oh, my gosh. Imagine that the galaxy is the size of the Earth. We're saying that the whole evolution of, of that Galaxy is controlled by something that's a size, equivalent to the size of, of um, a ladybug. Actually, the black dot on the on the wing of a ladybug, and so oh my something God. More tiny is affecting something the size of the Earth, just in the same ratio, right? Only you have to multiply it all up by. But they say it's so tiny and influencing something so enormous. So you can see that uh, it's tricky. I mean, there's a lot of energy coming out of the quasar, unlike a ladybug fortunately.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, I'm glad that our atmosphere absorbs all that was, I'm assuming radiation.
1: It might be be evolving much too fast if uh, we had had, always coming down.
0: (laughs) That's incredible. And even, I mean, when we were thinking about it to that scale, it definitely does help. But um, yeah, all of what you're saying, my jaw is just kind of dropped. It's really hard to sort of comprehend yeah, yeah, the scales that's in astronomy amazing. are
1: completely, well, astronomical, right? They're completely silly. Yeah. Uh, so it takes some practice getting used to them, uh, but you do.
0: And you find this through math. I mean, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. And,
1: and using the physics uh, that we – what in a way, it's kind of amazing that the physics we learn that uh, governs – you know, like, like Newton famously had the apple drop on his head, at least apocryphally – uh, and he thought, oh, I wonder if it's fallen for the same reason that the moon is in orbit. And, and now we've, you know, that that was a huge leap. And we very arrogantly said, well, why not apply it to the entire universe, right? So everything out there is obeying the same rules as the apple.
0: Oh, man. Okay. What? Um, and we have something on here. Haley is, is trying to hold my hand along this. Uh, AG, <laughs> a,
1: AGN. Oh active galactic nuclei. that's just a, gen, a word. At one point we were very confused about what kinds of uh, what turned up, they all turned out to be basically the same thing. A, a giant black hole with gas falling onto it that produces this uh, c- very complicated set of observed features and it got even more complicated when you put dust and gas in the way which obscures the ultraviolet and the x-rays in particular but also it's mm. the optical and it was getting and it was very hard to see what was what and then the, the absorbed radiation has to come out somewhere and what it ends up coming out as much cooler radiation coming out from dust so every piece of the spectrum was a bit you know, much more complicated than, than it really needed to be when we understood what was going on. So there were, there were dozens of names, at least two dozen different names for the different types of what we thought were different types of objects. And they're not different at all, really, once we, mostly when you get rid of the obscuring gas and dust, then it all turns out to be surprisingly simple. Hmm. When and simple, of course, in quotes, because you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, I don't know about simple. <laughs>
1: Right. <laughs> a lot less confusing than it used to be, anyway. So AGN <laughs> was a, a, a sort of general word to include all of these uh, active galactic nuclei.
0: Oh, okay. And that's an official official term that you... Um,
1: yes, everybody uses. I wish we'd used quasar, but everybody wants to use uh, AGN, which is much less uh, you know, appealing to me, anyway. <laughs> oh,
2: okay. Yeah, yeah, quasar you.
1: sounds so cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, right. Well, we'll take that under advisement and try, I'll try to convert the entire astronomical thing. <laughs> I'll, I'll, Haley says this, so, or was it Cody? Exactly. Yes.
2: I'm I'm the person to go to for these things. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, yeah. So... Um, we talked about uh, what like how black holes are formed. Uh, could you touch on how quasars are formed?
1: Uh, well, it's the same process, right? So um, hmm. the black I was talking about the black hole, the supermassive ones. we don't know how they start, but we know hmm. how they grow. right They grow by two means. One is if they merge, two black holes bang together, they, they merge and emit lots of gravitational waves. But end up you end up with a bigger black hole than you started with, and they would do that when two galaxies merge, which happens a lot uh, in early times in the universe. Mm. Uh, but the other method is just from gas pouring down onto them, which could come from the galaxy itself. Just the the there's gas in between the stars called the interstellar medium. Clever name. It means in the <laughs> stuff between the stars, and. Um, Sometimes, normally that's in in orbit uh, and doesn't move inwards. But if another galaxy passes nearby, it can disturb the gas and Mm. take it off its nice, simple orbit and starts to fall inwards. And some of that will hit the black hole and and be absorbed by it. And everything you throw at the black hole just increases its mass and gets bigger and bigger. Mm. So those are the two ways in which they grow.
2: I have... A question: Since we're talking about galactic mergers, how do you feel about the term "galactic cannibalism"?
1: Uh, uh, well, it's where where one big galaxy eats a smaller galaxy. When we say "eat," mm-hmm. it means rips it to pieces, uh, so they oh it and so you can identify its uh, original parts.
0: Gruesome. Nature, oh, no. man. Oh,
1: red right in tooth and claw. Yeah. So, so <laughs> in fact, we've, thanks to a lot, particularly the Gaia satellite, a European satellite, mm-hmm. uh, it's been possible to map out streams of disrupted small galaxies around our own Milky Way. Our own Milky Way has been eating small galaxies. And we used to know about one or two of these, and now there's a, a dozen or more. That we can map out. There are big streams across the sky of, di- of, di- of stars out of these disrupted galaxies.
2: I just love asking about that because one of our astronomers, uh, Dr. Michael West, he talks about galactic mergers and he loves using the term galactic cannibalism. It's yes. cannibalism <laughs> is- so
1: can we come up with a, a fun term? Mostly most yeah. dark matter, boring as I a mean. term, dark energy. <laughs> But uh, although they're great start, great things, we're not usually as clever as, as making up good names for things as say the
0: right. I feel like it's very hot or cold. Like I feel like some of the naming systems for like the the comets and moons and different stuff is fun. And then yeah, that it's like you know, I'm yeah. sure some of it like planetary nebula. I get it. It <laughs> looked like a planet at one point. It's confusing. <laughs> in a bad photograph.
1: Yes. Well, yeah. I must say I approve heartily of the naming system for asteroids mm, mm-hmm. since 9283 Martin Elvis is one of them so
0: right <laughs> so yeah did... it
1: must be a good system right
0: how'd that happen
1: uh, I was very surprised uh, uh, I was at a meeting about asteroids in Finland of all places and <laughs> they I didn't I, the first one I'd been to so they had a very drunken banquet which was great. <laughs> nice. and I was sitting because I was, i been totally new in the community. I sat with a bunch of grad students and every one by one at the end, they started having their asteroids awarded to them for getting a PhD basically in the field. Oh, wow. Oh, wonderful. I didn't know this happened Oh, huh, Great. And then they read out my name. So it went, ah! I was wow. completely stunned. Yes.
2: No, it's super cool. If you work at Lowell for five years, you get an asteroid named after you. So I too have an asteroid. (laughs) What's your number? I don't know my number, but I know it's just Haley Osborne. Um, I forget what the number is, though. Oh, I don't think they and, ever sent it to me, actually.
1: Oh, no, you must have a number. There's, I know. I don't know. There's a lot of, there's, there's, there's a lot of uh, one-upmanship on, on how low your number is, right? Ooh. Oh, and really? I'm just under 10,000, so I've got a four-digit one. Ah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I don't think there's anyone alive with a three-digit with a, a 3 one anymore. But uh, I may be wrong there. Well,
0: in the the three degrees of Haley Osborne, you've got Haley has an asteroid named after her and Haley was named after a comet. So So would you say that um, black holes are kind of at the top of the galactic
1: food chain? Ooh, well... In the sense that uh, nothing eats them. Uh, yes, if something eats a black hole, it tends to become a black hole. I
0: mean, <laughs> It just becomes a larger black yeah, hole, right?
1: Right. So in that sense, but it's not like black holes are wandering around consuming everything in sight. Uh,
0: oh, no, there's space monsters in my head now. I'm sold.
1: Oh, no, no, no <laughs> I've done a bad job.
0: <laughs> I mean, they're just eating up. Galaxies in yeah, you
1: know, but, 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 but the galaxy uh, way it has an enormous mass compared with the black mass of the black hole in it. It, it mm. uh, less than one percent of the mass of the our galaxy is in the black hole at the centre. Tinier mm-hmm. fraction, actually, probably ten times less. I, yeah. I ought to know that number precisely, but I I, I don't. But it, but it's tiny amount, and it's not eating anything at the moment. It only eats what comes by. And Uh, it's very hard for anything to uh, to get that to to fall in that far,
2: because mm -hmm. angular
1: momentum again. It's very hard to lose all the angular momentum you have. So for the sun, we're we're moving around at a very distant orbit from the black hole. It's completely stable. We're we're not going to fall into the black hole. Same time.
2: Thank gosh! (laughs) I really love that you're using the term "fall in," because a lot of people think that like black holes are vacuums, and I'm like, no, 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 no. no, no, no.
1: (laughs) It doesn't suck except for its gravity right so we, mm-hmm. but, and that's it's you wouldn't notice the ga- the the gravity of the black hole until you're uh, just uh, fairly close to it right mm, 30 light years something like that yeah which is nothing of course but on the scale of our galaxy which is um, a 24 uh, 25,000 light years uh, from from us to the to the galactic center -hmm so thirty is a tiny, tiny fraction.
0: So I've um, I've heard of, and I don't know if this is spaghettification or not. I think it is, but when you fall, to- if if you were to fall toward a black hole, you would, your atoms would be split apart, basically. But wouldn't you just kind of thunk against something?
1: No, there's there's no inner surface that we know of. Uh, that current physics says there's nothing. That goes go to an absolute singularity. Uh, so what pulls you apart is the tidal forces. That is, uh, you, the the uh, moon raises a tide on the Earth, and so the water in the ocean is pulled a bit towards the moon, and a bit o- on the opposite side drops is it flops a little bit away from the moon. Right now, if the gravitational pull of the moon was much bigger, there'd be much bigger tides, and it would start to pull apart the, uh, the rock as well as the uh, uh, water. Right. So, in in a black hole, it gets so in extremely. Uh, uh, strong the gravity that your toes feel a much bigger pull than your head and that's how you get spaghettified
0: my god and that's like before it gets to the ball the smooth
1: no you that's that's uh it, essentially inside the event horizon mm-hmm. uh. so you couldn't so no one can hear you scream yeah
0: <laughs> definitely not the monster of, of no space, though. No, so. no. No, no, innocent sweet little boys.
1: Yes. <laughs> the the uh the giant black holes are much more gentle to begin with. You wouldn't even notice you crossed the event horizon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but as you go further in, they all end up the same way.
2: Oof. Yeah. We, um, I actually have a question and I've I've read this a bunch and I just want to like confirm that this is a theory, obviously it's a theory because we've never been inside a black hole, but I've heard that um since gravity is essentially like a, a warp in space-time, if you were to go into a black hole, the gravity would be so intense that like you would be able to see the universe from beginning to end all at once. It because like space-time just kind of like drops out from underneath you. Is that is that true?
1: I don't think so.
2: No? I've,
1: I've not heard that, and I can't see why it would happen. Uh, I may be wrong because I'm not a expert in general relativity, mm-hmm. but uh, no, I have not heard that. Okay, cool, cool.
2: Yeah, I've read it in a few places, and it was like this is obviously we've never been inside a black hole, so I don't know. But
1: so you think it might terrified. be worth dropping in just for a uh, for the brief experience of seeing the entire universe.
2: Oh, 100%. Yeah,
1: I would totally do that. And and then you become spaghetti, but you don't mind.
2: Yeah. I love spaghetti. I mean, seriously, (laughs) like if I (laughs) come down with some (laughs) fatal illness, if I come down with some fatal illness, shoot me into a black hole. Like that's (laughs) how I want to go
1: out. (laughs) (laughs) All right.
2: (laughs) Terrifying.
0: (laughs) Terrifying. (laughs) You have the
1: strangest thoughts. Okay.
0: Yes, yes. This is... (laughs) You didn't know when you signed up for the Star Stuff podcast what you were walking into. (laughs) So what caused you, because this is such a crazy, fascinating subject. Mm -hmm. Um, What, like, how did asteroids win you over?
1: Well, it's, uh, it comes straight out of uh, wanting a, a much bigger replacement for the Chandra X-ray Observatory and the Spitzer Observatory and the Hubble Observatory. Now, we've got, we've got a replacement for, in part for both of the other two uh, because James Webb Space Telescope uh, operates in the sort of infrared band that's overlapped by uh, both the Spitzer Space Telescope, uh, the Infrared Great Observatory, and, uh, and Hubble, the optical, great, optical UV Great Observatory, uh, yeah. and, but there was nothing for uh, to replace Chandra. Chandra is really a very small telescope. If you think of its, although it's got a, a big diameter mirror about uh, four feet across, one point two meters, um, it, they, you can only focus X-rays by putting them in a, a telescope that that uh, is almost looks like a cylinder. You bounce. Uh, X-rays off the sides of an almost perfect cylinder. It's slightly deep, more. It's slightly bent inwards from that to focus the X-rays, but otherwise the X-rays just get absorbed. They don't reflect. Right. This is called a grazing incidence uh, telescope, and so although it's it has all that uh, it's got that big diameter, the actual area of, of mirror that is doing the reflecting is tiny. It's about the same as a dinner plate. Right. So imagine, so that's no bigger than a, a, a decent sized amateur telescope in the optical. So we'd love to have something much bigger and better. Uh, trouble is, they, they, these things cost billions, right? And mm. in fact, James Webb cost 10 billion, more or less. So, And we'd love to have more of them we could do with a far infrared one to complement uh, the Webb telescope. Uh, and I realized we are never going to be able to afford it on the budget that oh. NASA's ever likely to get, even if you doubled the budget of NASA, of, of NASA astrophysics, uh, it, you might get one more, but you wouldn't get three or four, which is what we, we've been, we've been had a very privileged existence since, I don't know, about 1980, uh, mm-hmm. where we've had comparable access to all of the spectrum from the infrared you know, optical UV x-ray. Um at the same time, and that meant we could, I could do that kind of work I mentioned earlier, mapping out where the power comes from in quasars. And <clears throat> it's been particularly good in the last 20 years, uh, because we've had these three great observatories, which are super advanced over what we had before, and uh, it's been wonders. But where, what do we do next across? Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, we've got to make space cheaper, uh, yeah. How can we make it easier? To, and that means not relying on uh, a government budget, because that's just not going to. That had no history of making things cheaper. It, in fact, perhaps more expensive. It depends how you analyze it, but certainly not cheaper. And we need things to be ten times cheaper at least. I thought to so so mm-hmm. have a good array of satellites, uh, of different telescope uh, designs, all orbiting at once, and. Um, this was before SpaceX had started to uh, bring the price of, of uh, launch down. Mm-hmm. So I was, But it's along the same lines. I was thinking what we need is to employ that all-American weapon, capitalism, uh, <laughs> yep. as a tool to bring the price of things down. Because that's one thing it does very well, right? Typically, uh, once you get away from monopoly situations, capitalism, the competition involved there uh, does bring the prices down. Uh, pretty Im- amazingly often. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, that means we have to have something to do in space that is worth a lot of money. And so I started reading up. And so the, there are resources on the moon and in the asteroids that are uh, potentially worth a lot of money. So I thought mm-hmm. hey, that's the way to go. And I'm an astronomer. I'm not a planetary scientist and because <laughs> uh, that's much too difficult. That's geology. <laughs> and, uh, so I thought well I can't study the moon but I can study asteroids because we use all the same techniques that we use to study quasars right we take images we, we look at the colors of things we look at spectra we look how they vary in time and those are tools I'm completely familiar with so I thought I might mm-hmm. be able to help there and concentrate not on the interesting fascinating in fact science of the asteroids uh, and what they tell us about the solar system, the history of the earth, the history of life on the earth even. Um, but on what what they may what are they made of such that we could actually imagine mining that material and selling it.
2: Got to it before I could say anything. I was going to say what mining. I'm hearing is asteroid mining. <laughs> you got it. Really? Yes.
1: yes. And uh, at the time that when I first talked about this in public, I thought I was being very bold and the two months later, two different companies uh, announced they were doing it, and I was just an academic talking about it. And they were <laughs> so I, I felt I felt like uh, I was a prophet for about a, a month, and after
2: that,
1: <laughs> I fell by the wayside. But I, I still looked at the at the problem.
0: Mining yeah. for what?
1: Uh, okay, so there were there are two things that people always talk about. Um, one is platinum and platinum group metals, which are both all very rare on the Earth, uh, and the reason they're rare is that they melt in liquid. It, it, they dissolve into uh, in liquid iron, right? So when the Earth was very hot and liquid, uh, all these these particular elements, platinum, palladium, and so on, um, dissolved into the into the uh, iron that was uh, around, and then as the Earth cooled. The silicate rocks—that is, most of what we, most of the rocks we look at—they they crystallized out, but the iron didn't, and it settled towards the centre of the Earth. So we have an iron core in the Earth, and that's mm-hmm. where almost all of the platinum and palladium and all those good things are uh, on the Earth, and that's totally inaccessible. So it's there's only trace amounts in the uh, Earth's crust, which is all we can get to. So mm. The process happened in the uh, progenitors of the, of the, uh, asteroids, right? They were called planetesimals so kind of big about the size of the largest asteroid, uh, series, which is about a thousand kilometers across. So, uh, what's that 600 miles, something mega. Um, and they, those, that same process happens it's called differentiation where the silicate rock separates out from the, from the iron and. It would have stayed there, but there were so many other planetesimals around that they collided a lot and broke up. And so some of the asteroids we see today are pure um metal core of of a former little world. Mm -hmm. Those and they will have they have, in fact, we know from meteorites, which are little pieces of these asteroids, that some of them are, are indeed very rich in platinum, uh richer than any mine on Earth. So if you could find those maybe you could refine the platinum out and uh, sell it for lots of money because it goes for about 50 million dollars a ton
2: oh, oh my
1: gosh. gosh a ton is wow. amount, by the way as well the volume of it is very small because it's very very uh, high density material
0: oh man that would be it's crazy insane i mean yeah. that feels so just like asteroid mining okay that's a that's a real thing now.
1: Okay. Well, uh, those two companies I talked about did go out of business. Uh, they were taken over, oh. and then ah. they're not actually pursuing it now. But others are. Mm-hmm. That's how capitalism works, right? Someone right. they died. They had to make a decision. Is now the right time? And the answer was right. eh, But maybe now is the right time.
2: Yeah. Um, if if people read your biography, you mention the commercial potential of asteroids. That's what we're talking about, right? Yeah. This this asteroid mining.
1: Yes, correct.
2: Okay, cool. I just wanted to make sure in case people were going to read your biography. Oh,
1: okay. That's what I'm talking about. Yep. Awesome. awesome. The problem with the platinum is, first of all, there aren't very many platinum-rich asteroids. And I did a little calculation on that that really upset some of the uh, people in the companies saying that it's only a, t- a tiny fraction of them are going to be accessible. Uh, they're big enough to make a billion dollars off and uh, the right Type and the right richness of platinum
0: we have one of our one of our scientists here at lowell observatory is uh very involved in the dart mission and i was wondering if you had any interest in the dart mission in the research that you're currently doing
1: uh yes so uh i we haven't mentioned my book which is called asteroids how love fear and greed will determine our future in space uh the, yes we, we just talked about the greed a little bit right and uh, by love i meant the love of knowledge and science so it's a bit of a cheat but uh it's <laughs> the history of our own <laughs> solar system where did the oceans come from where did the where did the iron come from that we use to make our civilization? And maybe even where did, where did life come from? Because uh, asteroids contain huge numbers of uh, really bigger and bigger, we're finding, uh, organic molecules that, might, that they may have brought to the Earth in the first place. That may have been yes. starter material for like the, the, the yeast. <laughs> no, not actual yeast, sorry, but <laughs> just the starting materials from which life may have formed. So that's the Good. but, but the, the fear is of course that the an asteroid will come and destroy us the way it destroyed the dinosaurs right yeah, yeah I, that I, well I had um so, so, since we've talked about being spaghettified in a black hole now we're talking about being bashed on the head by a rock uh, it's <laughs> right. field, this whole thing I'd not quite realized yeah
2: <laughs> so we did this episode a while back uh, uh, like one of our first episodes, honestly, it was a movie review, and I have to know if you've seen this movie. And if you have, I want to know your thoughts on it because uh, we're talking about asteroids, so of course I have to bring up the movie Armageddon. Oh, I'm have sure. you
1: seen uh, this movie? Yes, yeah. it's here for Bruce.
2: Bruce, <laughs>
0: yes, it was a popular demand movie review, so we we did what the people wanted. <laughs>
1: yeah, and, and at the time, I think everybody laughed because. Uh, uh, spoiler alert, he digs a, a hole into the asteroid, puts a nuclear bomb in it and sets it off, and he can't tragically mm-hmm. escape. But there you go, because that's what happens. Um, yes, but of course. of course. So, so i ruined that one for you. So, um, <laughs> it turns out, and there's some people, that, no, no surprise who calculated the effects of, a, of what you would really do with an atomic bomb, and that is people at Los Alamos National Lab who love mm-hmm. atomic bombs. Um, if you set one off not inside, inside if you put it explode it inside it doesn't really it doesn't slow the material down it just disperses it over a bigger region right so the earth if, if, if you could make it expand fast enough far enough away from the earth uh, it would then most of the mass would swing on by but uh, in Armageddon it was all like down to the wire right the last minute thing um, if you put the bomb on one side of it, either on the side it's uh, it's moving towards or the side it's moving away from and explode it there, it turns out it, it would be a very effective way, we think, with current simulations, of slowing the asteroid down or speeding it up a little bit so in its orbit, so that instead of intercepting the Earth, it's already zipped by Earth's orbit by the time the Earth gets there. Right? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe Bruce was right, but he, he he didn't put it in the right place. His heart, yeah. was, oh, okay. his heart was in the right place. His bomb wasn't.
2: His bomb was not. <laughs> but, um, and you mentioned Los Alamos. I just wanted to clarify for our listeners. Uh, Los Alamos is in New Mexico. It's where the Manhattan Project took place. So the, the creation of the atomic bomb.
1: And they still study that today as well.
0: Our next topic is something I want to focus on now, and that is your book, Asteroids How Love, Fear, and Greed Will Determine Our Future in Space. What
1: a great Um, book! Yeah.
0: What a great title. Let's talk about that. (laughs) Um, And we have, I have highlighted some reviews here that were some of my favorites. Um, this one was, uh, by another author, uh, John Mather he said it was a delightful trip around the solar system's most dangerous and useful objects left over from the beginning causes of mass extinctions and a chance for space trillionaires, uh, which I thought was really fun. Cause that review, um, I, I, I think sort of encapsulates what you were saying. This book was about. Yeah, he, he was
1: very nice it. about it. I was very, I was very pleased that he was willing to write that for me. Yeah, he, he, he wrote, he wrote cool. it while working uh, as the, uh, I think he's the project scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope. So you know, he had a few other things.
0: Yes. That, so, yeah, he's got a Nobel <laughs> Prize. No big oh, deal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, no biggie. Um, But yeah, the reviews on this book are incredible and it speaks to, um, you know, their opinions that these are incredible people that have very glowing reviews. Uh, and I would like to hear from you what inspired this book. Um, writing a book is, is no small feat and what could readers expect when they read it?
1: Uh, I had the, I, I was diving into the asteroid literature, right? Learning about some of the science and the threats and particularly trying to understand how we could use them for mining. And I realized that after a while I, I got together a body of knowledge that mm, perhaps no one else had, uh, or <laughs> no one else was interested in, in writing it down for, the, for a wider audience. Uh, a lot of people, uh, Especially the the astronomer types who study the science uh, really don't want to know about the idea of you know, mining their favorite objects and turning them into products. Oh, yes. right. Um, and I, I've actually written a, a papers about the uh, the ethics of doing that. So uh, that that's a comes in maybe a little bit at the very end of the book. So so I, I uh, that I made a readable version of all these aspects. And introduce them, sort of explaining what asteroids are, how we have found them, the history, and then going into well, how would we uh, study them? What what are the motives? Uh, of this love, fear, and greed are pretty strong motives, and and uh, I explain how each one applies to the science. The fear of being killed by the like the dinosaurs, or or probably much more likely, have a big city destroyed by. Uh, uh, an asteroid. That's, there's many more city killers than there are dinosaur killers out there, right? Yeah, and uh, there's lots of fun there because every uh, every couple of years there's a thing called the Planetary Defense Conference, and I love to go to it if I can find an excuse.
0: Sounds yeah. so cool. And,
1: yeah, yeah, it's, and, and it's a rehearsal sort of thing of everyone puts up their latest research results, but the fun part is that at the beginning of the conference they announce that. Uh, we've just discovered this new asteroid and there's a 30% chance it's going to hit the earth, which is a huge percentage, yeah. right? Mm. And so uh, every day in the conference, they have a section uh, on this. And every day in the conference corresponds to several months in the in real world. And mm-hmm. everyone, every participant becomes either uh, a, a political leader of a affected country, a political leader of not affected hmm. country, uh, an expert or a general public. Oh, and journalists and general public. And I was so junior. I was absolutely the, uh, the bottom end. I was a general public, right? And uh, they designed so that every time we fail, right? Every time mm-hmm. we to stop this asteroid, we fail because they want to ex- look through the whole system, and see who's going to, uh, where, where the weak spots are in response, right? And uh, mm. as they kept getting closer and closer, we in the general public kept saying, What about nukes? And then we said, come oh, <laughs> <the> about nukes? <Don't laughs> use the nukes, right?
2: <laughs> Take Bruce's way. <laughs> yes. I right, believe
1: it's in the Bruce. Uh, um, and, and they never do because the, the uh, nuclear. Weapons are banned under the Outer Space Treaty in space, but then you get into the question: Well, if I'm using it to save the Earth, is it still a weapon? You know, and it, it's That's a right. very, very interesting sort of almost philosophical question, but it's quite real. Yeah. But they're quite real right. in, in the real world. It, it really matters. Can I use a nuke to stop one of these uh, uh, asteroids killing cities? I, I, I go through the whole thing of what happened in there, and I, I think it was very helpful, sort of clarifying. Uh, people now, then people started trying to do a real, real-time thing on a on an asteroid that was not a threat, but they said, "Okay, let's pretend it's a threat and gather information on it." We don't know its orbit very well; we don't know anything about it much, uh, but we, we sort of know where to find it, roughly. And so they lined up some of the biggest telescopes in the world and um, to take pictures and spectra and get colors and to use radar on it. And it was, a, it was a, the first time they tried it. It was kind of a, a cascade of failures. The, the radar didn't work because there was a storm in and that took out the power to Arecibo before it collapsed. <clears throat> and it's nothing to do with it collapsing. <laughs> Not our fault, honest. <laughs> and the, there was a timing problem on the telescope, so it pointed just in the slightly the wrong place, but enough that it didn't detect the asteroid in the infrared where we would have worked out how big it was. And so you, that's the whole point of doing these exercises, because you find out where the weak spots are, and ne- next time you won't have those, you'll find something else. Mm-hmm. And you'll gradually do repeat that, and you, you end up with a system that really works. So that's so it's a really a very useful uh, conference and set of exercises follow through. So yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff under under how we would deal with uh, with, the, with uh, a threatening asteroid. You know, we we could use a, a gentle way of moving it out of the way, but called a gravity tractor, where you just send up oh. just send up a, a, a as massive a spacecraft as you can and have it move just slightly in front of the of the object. <clears throat> of the asteroid and, and pull on it with its own gravity, which is a tiny, tiny force, but over a few years would be enough. So you need oh. a lot of warning time. So that that's one way. Um you could make a you could go to the asteroid, pick up a big rock from the surface and may so make your spacecraft ten times more massive and then it comes down to maybe a year or two. But you have to know there's a rock on the surface you could pick up, and we don't. Right, It'd be very embarrassing to say, "Oh, sorry, it's uh, smooth as a billiard ball. Nothing we can do." you are all <laughs>
0: uh,
1: And then there's the dart method, which is right, right, which is if you hit it with something very fast moving, that will slow it down. If you hit it on the nose, right, in the direction it's going. Uh, I seriously
2: love that we were like, let's just ram into an
1: asteroid to get it to move.
0: It'll (laughs) happen.
1: Who knows? We'll find out when when, uh, dark actually has its impact.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, we're so excited! Yeah, I know Dr. Uh, Maskovitz at Lowell is. Oh yes, I'm yeah. sure counting down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I love, I love throwing the word planetary defense in there too because that's all. Oh, yeah, fun. <laughs> yeah, uh,
1: it's it's pretty weird that there is such a conference, but there is. And it, it's,
0: <laughs> oh, it's getting. more It's and so more cool. Weird.
1: Yeah, very good.
0: One of your reviewers said, if we are to have a future in space, Elvis shows us how. (laughs) Um, I hope. Really cool. Very, I mean,
1: that's just really exciting. Where can we buy your book? Well, you can get it straight from Yale University Press. uh, Okay. Or, which would be nice for them. I bet they make more money that way than uh, from uh, buying it on Amazon. But it is on Amazon. Okay. And you know, if if two or three people buy it, it'll bump my rankings up way from like one millionth to somewhere in the hundred thousands. Heck yes! Yeah.
0: It's in my cart right now. I well, I love the uh, the cover art. Mm -hmm. I am obsessed with it. I love the colors. I love the like the whole vibe of it. Um, Cool. And I am vain enough to buy a book because of the cover, but I will definitely. I'm actually really excited to get this one. Judging
1: it by its cover, but. uh, Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> it is so pretty. Content is, is fun too, and yes, so I've heard. Those <laughs> of you who are super nerds, uh, it does have end notes so everything is explained, and you can find where I got the information. <laughs> and because some, oh, sometimes you might want to follow something up in detail, and it's really frustrating in a book not where you can't do that. But uh, there you go. So I, that's why oh, I like to go with one of these university presses. So.
0: Well, we'll definitely put the link to the Yale books. Um, url for people to purchase this in our discord
2: i was wondering uh, how long did it take you to like gather that information and actually like write this book
1: uh uh I, I <laughs> yeah <I've been laughs> signing the contract when i thought i knew everything to actually delivering <laughs> it was about five you know, to publishing it was about five years.
2: Oh, okay.
0: Oh, and I'm sure a lot of research went into that. Yeah,
1: but I think I could write mm-hmm. another one quicker because I know how to do it now, but it was, it was, uh, yeah, tricky. And my problem was finding a way to talk that was, uh, to write, that was engaging, I hope, uh, okay. and yet... Completely- According
0: to the reviews. Like, yeah, yeah,
1: I think they're very wise, very wise reviews.
0: <laughs> oh, yes, very good people yeah, here. Very,
1: nothing but the <laughs> best. Uh, and yet conveyed real information so it isn't there's it's not fluff you'll you'll learn stuff but i hope it's easy to learn
0: yeah it says um uh this is another review here and it says he uh he so uh dr elvis even makes the parts about science approachable and as easy to follow as possible without dumbing them down so i highlighted that because i was like okay that's good for me
1: (laughs) and that's exactly what i was trying to do so i'm pleased that somebody thought that that's good yeah
0: yes five stars the it was what a fascinating and informative book so i am very excited to read about it and i i know we're like getting inch inching closer and closer to the end of our time but i have i have a, a geeky question for you and i have a nerdy question um what's your favorite sci-fi
1: Ooh, tricky <laughs> uh so so I, I when i was about 15 i read my way through the entire sci-fi collection at my local library which was only about two shelves or maybe three mm-hmm. right and mm-hmm. so I, i'm mm-hmm. very imbued with the old uh, isaac asimov arthur c club uh, yes
2: asimov like, yes the mm-hmm.
1: greats and the greats and mm-hmm. uh, so of of those i thought the short stories by Arthur C. Clarke, where your mind gets bent. He thinks of something yeah. where it's like, "Wow, what's going on? And, yeah. <laughs> and I, I, that actually got me to do physics in the first place because there were, I also cool. was, was given a call
0: really? on, on
1: quantum mechanics and said, I am never going to understand this unless mm-hmm. I study it in, at university. So I did. And nice. uh, I think it's fair to say that no one understands quantum mechanics, so uh, <laughs> yeah. but I, 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 I don't understand it in a deeper way than I would have
0: <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I don't understand it even but, better than I,
1: I, I love my Star Trek and and, uh, and the expanse and all uh, that.
0: see that's what I wanted to ask because you kept talking about mining (laughs) asteroids and I'm typing to Haley I'm like I hope he says dilithium crystals I hope he says dilithium (laughs)
2: crystals
1: (laughs) Cody's a huge Star Trek nerd not to be uh, uh, too science fiction but there are minerals in asteroids which do uh, do not form on Earth and in fact maybe cannot form on Earth Uh, so you know there could be strange crystals indeed out there what (laughs)
0: We see them, there
1: are, there's at least 70 of them in catalogued in in the literature, and we made a little table of them for for use that uh, we published. A student of mine, Nina Hooper, in particular, was involved. And uh, so some strange properties of those might be important for technology. Whether you ever get a source of uh, power like the dilithium crystals, well, it might, oh. might be asking too much, but...
0: How else will we get to warp drive?
1: Exactly. Come on. we got to get to warp. Come not we We
0: got to get in those asteroids. We have to get <laughs> in them.
1: So I actually talk about warp drive in about two pages at the, near the end of the book. So we can, uh, I'll leave that for you to find. Yes. Out. Cart to check out. Hard to
0: check out. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm um, so excited. I love the nerd talk. The nerd talk is so, so good. Um, <laughs> We are running out of time, but there are I two questions that I, I have to ask you. We ask most of our guests, and I, I just really want to know, because you've had such a long and prolific career. Um, I want to know, like what is your proudest achievement? What's, what's something in your career that you were like, this oh. is it? You know, This is the coolest thing I've done.
1: Uh, I, I spent six months or so obsessing over what the structure of quasars was, around the year 2000. It was 1999, actually. Why um, 2 that I would wake up in the night saying, wow, what if this? Oh no, I, oh, God, I couldn't do that. No, no, no. And uh, it came <laughs> to a big paper that uh, I call A Structure for Quasars. And I think that was the most fun time. And it, it pretty much holds up, I think, under uh, 20 years of new observations. They look sort of like I said, of course, not perfectly, but uh, yeah. So, so understanding, putting together all these different things, I've been learning for, for the previous twenty years. It's suddenly all gelled and crystallized into into this understanding, which I think holds up.
0: So, while everyone else was partying like it was nineteen ninety nine, you were <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> really excited about this paper.
1: <laughs> and, and I was right. <laughs> and you were right. Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah. It's true. Oh, man. All right. Final question. So, what advice would you give someone looking to go into your field of study?
1: Well, what's my field of study? If my field of study is asteroid mining, then you can do an (laughs) enormous range of things. Because for one thing, most of the people talking about asteroid mining are not miners. They're people like me who do a very theoretical side of things, relatively. So uh, you could become an astronomer and you could become an applied astronomer trying to find valuable asteroids. That's certainly a real thing coming up in the next five, 10 years. (laughs) Um, You could be a mining expert and learn how to deal with mining in vacuum and almost no gravity and not very hot and very cold, depending on whether you're in the sunlight or not. There's gonna be whole new challenges to mining engineering that has to sort of meld with space engineering, and they have totally opposite kinds of ways of approaching problems. Because one has to mining has to be really tough and strong, space has to be really lightweight, please. And yeah. how, how do you make those work together? That's going to be tough. You're going to need mm-hmm. economists and business people to learn how to to uh, make close the business case and and make uh, asteroid mining profitable. Uh, you'll need uh, regulators and lawyers to yeah. to uh, get the regulations up and, and up to where you can not only own the material, but you can bring it back safely and uh, are allowed to sell it because it is your property. And that's all very mm, pretty uh, unsettled law. Uh, and then you've got to be able to refine this material that, and, and extract what you want. We talked about platinum. But there's also water or iron. These could be very valuable, not on the ground, but in space, Mm -hmm. uh, where it's expensive to get, uh, even with SpaceX uh, reducing the cost, it can be still very expensive to launch uh, tons of water or tons of iron to build things in space or to make rocket fuel or um, uh, life support systems for water. Right. So there's a lot there. And what else do you need? Well, <clears throat> even politicians or diplomats can be important, and and in a longer term sense, ethicists, uh, philosophers uh, will be needed. Are we going to expand across the whole solar system using the yeah. material from asteroids, as in the expanse? Would it be that nasty? <laughs> um, <laughs> how long would it take for us to use up all the iron in the asteroid belt if, if the economy kept expanding the way it has for the past two hundred years? And the answer. 400 years. so oh, wow. In, in not very really oh. long. And that's a, that's a, assuming it doesn't grow even faster, which would shorten the time. So we yeah. would face a huge economic crisis. And so uh, we need to worry about, um, exp- or even though the resources of the solar system are millions of times more than we have on Earth, it makes sense to worry about it from the get-go. So we don't set up mm-hmm. something that's bound to fail. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a pretty wide range of skills we need in those places yeah so it's not yeah. just uh, being being a, a physics nerd or a math nerd uh, it, there are so many other ways that uh, asteroid mining needs other skills
0: and what if you were really interested in getting into quasars?
1: Oh and similar astrophysics uh, you study all the physics you can you do as well in math as you can and hmm. uh, find and uh, once you graduate from college, uh, with with a physics math degree, then you go into a PhD program, and if, you really do have to do a PhD to be a professional uh, astrophysicist. Mm. And um, it's far too much math. <laughs> yeah. Well, but not for some. Luckily, some people. Right. My my, my dad, when I was choosing to do astro- astronomy, said, oh, "Martin, there can't be more than one job a year in astronomy." No <laughs> <laughs> I only need one. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Right. So, when I guess, de- you got, you, depending you, on where
2: you are,
1: you've got to be lucky uh, and, and mm-hmm. uh, have some ability to, so, but mm-hmm. you might be. So whoever's listening, you might be the one.
2: Thank you so much for that information. And I'm so sad to say that we are out of time. Uh, Uh, I would, we have so many more questions. Uh. I know I could talk to you about this for hours. Oh my gosh. But, um, we are out of time. So, uh, thank you so much for being on this podcast. we genuinely appreciate it so much. Um, and I just want to mention uh, to all of our listeners, we do have a Discord channel and we've also got a Twitter uh, that we post about all of the behind-the-scenes content and everything. I'm sure we can uh, drop a link to Dr. Elvis's book, uh, Asteroids, How Love, Fear, and Greed Will Determine Our Future in Space, uh, mm-hmm. so that you know where to grab it. Because, uh, I mean, I'm personally really excited to read it, so I hope yes. you guys are too. But um, as usual, if you guys have any questions, uh, reach out to us through the discord through twitter or use the hashtag askstarstuff but uh, again mm-hmm. thank you so much for being on our podcast Dr. Elvis yes. oh it's a pleasure thank Thanks Thanks for
1: being such great hosts
0: oh, and where can you. we find you online if we wanted uh, if our fans have questions yeah.
1: I used to tweet but I really should get back to it I got sort of taken over by the book so I was, mm-hmm. I'm uh, what am I at? Martin S. Elvis Martin S. Elvis 1 I think no,
2: okay. so oh, I we'll can't
1: remember. I'll find you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll
2: okay, we'll find you on Twitter. I'll add you on yes. our Star Stuff okay. account so we can Thank share you. it with yes. everyone. We'll send you all the
0: fun questions because I feel like as many questions as I have after this conversation, I can't imagine okay. how many well, I should, I we're say, going to uh, get. I should go yeah.
1: One last thing, and that is, the book was written in my own time and is nothing to do with the Smithsonian Institution and it, I, it was a very legal process I had to go through, so the fact that I gotcha. wrote the Smithsonian has nothing to do with the fact that i wrote the book
2: it's oh, okay thanks Got for the clarification gotcha. yeah
0: thank you this podcast was made possible by our members and donors if you enjoyed this episode and want to support our nonprofit in making more digital education like this available go to slash donate thanks for listening